The deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In fact, Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virg virginal integrity but sanctified it. And so the liturgy of the church celebrates Mary as a Parthenos, meaning the ever-virgin. That is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Would you please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And when you've gotten there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And when you are there, please stand. Thus saith the Lord. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, Advent is officially over. We've put the candles away. But because today is Christmas Day, I hope that you will allow me to just extend our Advent sermon series just by one additional week. We've examined many myths of Mary as we've been going through this series, this Merry Christmas series. We've examined that whether or not she is a mediatrix, whether or not she is sinless, whether or not she ascended into heaven bodily, whether or not she should be called the mother of God. Today, there is one more very important belief about Mary that we must discuss. And this is the idea known as the perpetual virginity of Mary. The perpetual virginity. This is the idea that Mary was not only a virgin when Christ was born, but that she remained a virgin throughout the entirety of her life. That Mary is a Parthenos, the ever-virgin. In most churches around the world today, one cannot even be a Christian if you fail to affirm that Mary is a Parthenos, the ever-virgin. But was she? Is, the Mary, is Mary the ever-virgin? And if so, what does that have to do with Christmas? Well, I want us to, before we tie it into Christmas... I want to tell you why the Protestant churches have been uh, largely unanimous in these later days, we'll talk a little bit about the history in a moment, as in denying the perpetual virginity of Mary. We do not believe nor do we teach that Mary died a virgin. And I want to give you three reasons why, and then all of this will tie into our text and into Christmas very tightly. You will see. I know it might seem, not seem like it now, but I promise this is a Christmas sermon. The first argument, and these are basically the same arguments I've been giving throughout this entire sermon series. The first argument is the silence of Scripture. The silence of Scripture. We have to begin by stating that the Bible nowhere expressly teaches this idea. The Bible never even implies or hints or says that Mary remained a virgin 
during her entire life. What, it, what the Bible is crystal clear on, and what we have to affirm to be Christians, is that yes, Mary was a virgin when Christ was born. So we're not denying that. Jesus was virgin born. Mary was a virgin when Christ was conceived and when he was born. That is a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, and the Bible teaches that with absolute clarity. But it never says anything about her remaining in that virginal state throughout her entire life. Some concede this, but others don't. Some will say, no, the Bible does in fact very clearly teach that Mary remained a virgin her entire life. And this is the verse that they will say clearly teaches it. This comes from Luke chapter 1. After the angel Gabriel tells Mary that you are to conceive the Messiah, she is confused. There's no way, and here's why. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? There's your crystal clear proof that Mary remained a virgin her entire life. And, and here's what they'll say. They'll say, listen, I, I know that this is from the ESV. And the ESV is really confused you here. Because the ESV is not translating the, the Greek very literally here. This is a, a more loose translation. If you were to translate it more word for word, then what Mary actually said to the angel was, how can this be for I know not man? That's what she said. She said, I know not man. And the argument is that when Mary said, I know not man, she was hearkening us, she was telling the angel that she had made a vow to lifelong celibacy. That she was essentially telling the angel, how can this be since I have vowed to be a virgin my entire life? That's how they claim we should read this verse. And, and the primary argument is, why is Mary confused by what the angel says? Because remember, Mary is engaged to be married. So when the angel said, Mary, by the way, you're about to have a baby, Mary would have just assumed, oh, with Joseph. She would have just assumed, yeah, I'm about to, okay, I guess me and Joseph are going to produce the Messiah. Fantastic. So the fact that Mary, who's about to be married, is thinking, whoa, there's no way I could possibly have a baby anytime soon is if she was not expecting to ever have a baby even after her marriage. They're saying that there's no way she would have been confused unless she was hearkening to a vow to perpetual virginity. But this is a very forced interpretation for a number of reasons. Um, the first reason is just simply the grammar. The Greek text says nothing about a vow here. There's nothing about a vow here. Mary is simply saying, I'm a virgin right now. How can this be? There's the, the Greek word for vow is not anywhere in the chapter. There's no allusion to an Old Testament passage. There is simply nothing about a vow in this chapter. Another reason why this is very forced is because the idea of a young Jewish girl vowing herself to lifelong celibacy is not a thing. It's unheard of in Jewish culture. Uh, in Jewish culture, uh, being single... And not, or being barren, not having children, was considered a curse. All throughout the Old Testament, women not getting married, women not being able to have babies, this was something they lamented and wept over. It was not a thing for young Jewish girls to say, you know what, I'm never going to have children, I'm never going to have the blessing of children, I'm just going to be a virgin forever. It wasn't a thing. Why would Mary do this? We have no historical, cultural reason or biblical reason for her to have even taken this vow in the first place. It just wasn't a thing especially one who's engaged to be married. If some young Jewish girl was, for some reason, going to take a vow of lifelong virginity, we have no reason to think that she would have gotten married. 
Here we have a young Jewish girl who's about to be married. We have no reason to think she's expecting to be a virgin for the rest of her life. And so really, the reason Mary is confused is obvious. The reason she's confused is because she's obviously the, interpreting the angel as an immediate conception. She's interpreting the angel as saying, you are going to be this very moment with child. And she's saying, how can that be? I've never been with a man. It is impossible for me to have a child right now. She's interpreting the angel not as some future conception, but as an immediate conception. And that's why she's confused and says, I haven't slept with Joseph yet. How could I be pregnant? And that's when Gabriel tells her, the angel of the Lord will come upon you. That's where her confusion comes from. So there's nothing in this verse or in any verse of the Bible that positively teaches us that Mary remained a virgin. So our first argument against this is the silence of Scripture. It doesn't say this. But our second argument is much stronger. And we actually believe that the Scripture is not only silent on this issue, but it, it very forthrightly denies it. In other words, argument number two is the witness of Scripture, not the silence of Scripture, the witness of Scripture. The Bible teaches us in very, un, very clear terms that we should believe that Mary was not a virgin after she got married to Joseph. I want to give you a long list of biblical reasons, and I'm going to try, kind of try to argue from the weakest arguments to the strongest ones, but I think they're all valid. The first one comes from the very nature of marriage itself. Keep your marker in 1 Timothy, but turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is an important context because the book of 1 Corinthians is a response letter. What I mean by that is the, the, the church in Corinth wrote Paul a letter asking him a bunch of questions. 1 Corinthians is Paul's reply. So we see the questions. We don't have their letter, but we see the questions that he's answering. And in Corinth, there were some people teaching that virginity is a better way of life. It is good for a man to never know a woman. It is good for a man to never touch a woman. And so Paul is going to give his answer. What's Paul's answer? Is it good to not be married? Is it good to remain a virgin? And here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, saying it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Let us, or let, let's continue through verse 9. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. 
for it is better to marry than burn with passion. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Now, here's where I'm coming from. Notice that for Paul, one of the central purposes of marriage is to fulfill sexual desires. That's one of the reasons we get married. It is ludicrous to separate marriage from intimacy. I'm going to get married but remain a virgin. Why? You get married for the very purpose of not remaining a virgin. That's why you get married. And it's interesting because in this text, Paul does speak highly of virginity. He says, not as a command, just as a personal preference. I wish more people were like me. But he goes on to say, especially in verses 8, right, to, to, to the unmarried and to the widow. So if you're not married or if you are widowed or widower, then Paul says, if you're able to be single, then you should be. It'll open up a world of ministry opportunities for you. But if you are unable to be single, you should get married. Why? For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Here's what I want you to see. Do you see how closely linked intimacy and marriage is? We cannot separate these things. Paul even goes on to say that intimacy within marriage is a right. It's not a privilege. It's a right. It is owed. A husband owes his wife her conjugal rights. And a wife owes her husband her conjugal rights. This is a right. So what we see in 1 Corinthians 7 is Paul is tying intimacy and marriage so closely they can't be separated. A married virgin is an oxymoron to the Apostle Paul. It's a, it's a contradiction of terms. It doesn't exist. And here's especially how we know that. Because what does Paul say for those who, who want to, who don't feel uh, this, this burning desire, this burning passion for sex, sexual intimacy? What should they do? Verse 8, to the unmarried and widows, I say that it's good for them to get married but remain celibate. Be single. If you don't want to have intimacy with someone, that's fine. That's a great gift God has given you. Don't get married. The idea that someone would get married but remain a virgin is ludicrous to the biblical understanding of marriage. So here's one. Why do we believe that Mary did not remain a virgin? Because she got married. Because she owed Joseph his conjugal rights. Because that's the reason you get married. <laughs> At least one of them. So argument number one, the Bible says that Mary got married, and this is exactly what we expect married couples to do. But there's more. Look at this from Luke chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. This is what the Bible says about Mary, that, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, sometimes firstborn can be spoken of as an only child, but it's pretty rare. Generally speaking, if you have a firstborn child, you call the child the firstborn because others came after that. Right? In other words, Mary had lots of children. Jesus was the first of all those children. And I promise you, the rest of her children were not virgin births. Okay? So there's another argument from Luke chapter 2. A similar one is in Matthew chapter 1. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Notice that the, the implication here is that Joseph did at some point in time know his wife, right? So he took her into marriage, but they did not consummate that marriage until Jesus was born. The implication is that once Jesus was born, he then knew his wife. 
He just waited. He took her, but waited. Jesus was born, and then he knew her. Now, uh, oftentimes people will point out that the word until in the Greek, there's a huge debate in the Greek about it doesn't always mean that an action necessarily ceased. It's, it's, it's kind of a complicated grammatical argument. But I think that we can skip like a deep dive into Greek syntax. And I think we can just see from the context of what Matthew is trying to accomplish that he is implying that at some point in time, Joseph knew Mary the way the Bible says in Genesis that Adam knew Eve and they conceived a son. And because notice what's, what's the argument? What is Matthew? Why would he even write this at all? What's Matthew trying to teach his Jewish audience? He's trying to preserve the virgin birth of Christ. You see, all of the Jewish people, they knew Jesus' parents. They knew that Jesus had a mom and a dad. And so if you were to just go up and say, hey, that guy over there, he's virgin born. They'd say, no, he's not. I know his dad. I know Joseph. Matthew is trying to teach his audience, listen, I understand that Joseph and Mary were married and that they're both Jesus' parents, but you need to know that Jesus was conceived before that intimacy took place. And here's what I'm getting at. Imagine if Mary had taken this lifelong vow of virginity. Matthew's argument falls apart, right? Because now it doesn't matter whether Joseph took Mary before or after because at no point in time, she would have been, it would have been a virgin birth at any point in time. No matter when she conceived, it would have been a virgin birth. So the context here is Matthew understands that intimacy did take place, and he's worried that Jewish people are going to think Jesus is the product of that intimacy that did take place. And so he says, no, I get it. Joseph knew his wife, but Jesus was conceived before that point. Again, there's no reason to say this if Mary was a virgin forever because then she could have conceived at any point in time before or after Joseph took her in and we would have called it a virgin birth because she's a virgin forever. I hope that makes sense. But let's just say you're still not convinced. Let's say, listen, this is, Pastor, this is a lot of implication. The nature of marriage, well, there's exceptions. And uh, the word until, there's a Greek debate. And firstborn, sometimes only child are called that. Maybe you're not convinced. Well, let's just let it be known that the Bible very regularly, in very clear language, says that Jesus had brothers and sisters. There are seven times, at least, that I found, probably more, but there's seven different times in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, and in the epistles that tell us that Jesus had brothers and sisters. I could give all seven, but for the sake of time, let me just give a couple. Matthew 13, speaking of Jesus, the crowd says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Jesus' neighbors knew his brothers and sisters by name. He had brothers and he had sisters. The Apostle Paul affirms this in case you think maybe the crowd is mistaken. And the Apostle Paul saying that he, if he wanted to, he could get married. And he's, he defends himself saying, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Again, Jesus had brothers and sisters. And so that implies something about the nature of the relationship that Mary had with Joseph. Jesus had siblings. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, how does someone get out of that? Like, that seems pretty crystal clear. How does someone get out of that? 
One of the more common ways to get out of it is just say, listen, all of these translations are not very good. Um, because the Greek word in all of these texts, it's either adelphos if it's speaking of brothers, or it's adelphos if it's speaking of sisters. And all of these, the, the word adelphos or adelphos can mean brothers and sisters, but it can also just mean a general relative like a cousin or an uncle or just someone closely related to you. So one argument, this is primarily the argument the Roman Catholic Church takes, is that these are actually cousins of Jesus. These are just cousins. They're not actually brothers and sisters. And your translations could just be a little bit more accurate. Um, but there's a problem with this. It is technically true that Adelphos and Adelphos can mean relative and cousin. But at the writing of the New Testament, this was a very rare, outdated thing. It didn't really happen. And one of the easiest ways for you to know that, since none of us in here, I'm presuming, are Greek scholars, is because the Bible talks about relatives and cousins. And guess which word it never, ever uses? Adelphos or Adelphos. In other words, the biblical authors had a word they could have used if they wanted to communicate that these were cousins or nephews or relatives. And it chose to use the word that is always used of brothers and sisters. Let me just give you one example of this because they show up in the same verse. Luke 21, 16, Jesus tells this. He warns his disciples of this. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Do you think that in the Greek, Jesus said you will be delivered up even by parents and Adelphos and Adelphos and friends? No. He used a different word for relatives. Adelphos and relatives. He used syngenis. They're different Greek words. Adelphos and Adelphos mean sisters and brothers. They don't mean cousins. They don't mean relatives. Jesus had brothers and sisters. The more clever way to get around this is what the Eastern Orthodox Church does. And they claim that Joseph was a very old man when he married Mary and that he brought uh, children from a prior marriage into the marriage. That's what they say. Because it is true, in the Greek, they didn't really have a word for stepbrother. So they would have just called them brothers and sisters. And so here's how I want to approach that this way. Sometimes when we come to believe something about the Bible, we don't necessarily need like a nail in the coffin argument. Sometimes it's okay just to look, to take a step back and look at what, what is the, the most plausible understanding of Scripture. Not just what could technically be true. Well, technically until doesn't mean that. And technically Adelphos doesn't mean that. And technically and technically and technically. What is the general message of the Scriptures? Just taking at face value the accumulation of, of data. In other words, why would you believe that these are actually half-brothers from another marriage? Even if that's technically true, where are you getting that from? It's, it's not from the Bible. It's from an outside tradition forcing you to believe that. It's not from history. It's not from Scripture. It's from a church. And, and here's the point I'm trying to make, to put this simple. Let's just assume for a moment that these really were cousins, or they were from another marriage. Doesn't the Bible seem like it's sort of intentionally trying to hide that from us? <laughs> Like, if, if that's really what the, the authors of the Bible believed, why didn't they say that? Why did they leave all of these false breadcrumbs? Like, until, and firstborn, and brothers, and sisters. It, it, it almost seems like the Bible's trying to trick us. All right? Well, it says he has brothers and sisters, but they didn't really mean that. Well, it says until, but that's not really what it means. It says firstborn, but that's not really what it means. When you just take a step back, doesn't the, the more plausible understanding of the New Testament suggest that Jesus had siblings, that Jesus had brothers and sisters, and that the purpose of marriage is to be intimate with your spouse? It seems like 
We need a lot of evidence to override that, more so than just the church says so. So I think when you look at the Bible, you really should walk away believing that Mary had a normal marriage after the virgin birth of Christ. Now, I do have one more argument, but admittedly, in the name of full transparency, I have, I, I have to qualify this argument. Throughout the last four weeks, I've always appealed to church history because everything we've looked at up to this point has had horrible historical attestation. There is no evidence in the early church that Mary was sinless. There is no evidence in the early church that Mary bodily assumed into heaven. There is no evidence in the early church that she was a co-redeemer and a co-mediator with Christ. These things have no historical pedigree at all. The perpetual virginity, that is not the case. Admittedly, in full transparency, the perpetual virginity actually has very, very good historical evidence to it. This is, without a doubt, a very ancient belief, which from the 4th century on became the universal belief of the entire Christian church. And I would say all the way up to the Reformation, but here's a difficult thing we have to deal with. Even the Reformers believed in this. Martin Luther, John Calvin. The, to deny the perpetual virginity is a very novel understanding. And we have to be careful when we believe novel things. Uh, so we, sh we should approach this with humility, and we should approach this with an open mind because it actually is a very historical Christian belief. But however, I still think we have good historical reasons to reject this. I still think there are some uh, arguments against it. And let me just give a couple. First and foremost, among the earliest centuries of the church, the ones that really, really count, and I'm talking before the fourth century, so within the first 300 years, what we, we have is a, a, a handful of things. We have Basically, most people didn't talk about it at all, which is kind of an argument on our side. If this is supposed to be this foundational belief of Christianity, you would think someone would talk about it every now and then. But for the first 300 years, no one really said anything about it at all. Mary just isn't really discussed. Mary was not nearly as important in the first 300 years as she's become to people today. So we just don't have a lot of literature about it in the first 300 years. We do have some people in the first 300 years. Origen is a name of someone who affirmed it. But we also had people who absolutely rejected it. We have writers like Tertullian and Hegesippus who very clearly taught that Mary had other biological children. So the perpetual virginity of Mary really did not become widespread until the 4th century. And that was because the two heavy hitters of the Christian church affirmed it with a lot of passion. Jerome and Augustine. Jerome and Augustine really liked this doctrine and they kind of changed everybody's mind. And so from the 4th century on, this was the view of the church. But I would argue within that first 300 years, the evidence could really go either way. I think it's actually on our side. But here's the more important historical argument. There is one witness to the virgin perpetual virginity, which is very, very ancient. We're talking 2nd century witness. And it's a heretical document. It's known as the Proto-Evangelium of James. It is a very bizarre, strange, ahistorical, heretical doctrine which teaches very clearly that Mary uh, went into a cave 
when she was pregnant and her midwife had to step out for a second. And while her midwife was out, a light, a blinding light filled the cave. And when she walked in the light, Jesus was there. And Mary had no pain and there was no crying and she didn't even know she gave birth. And then when the midwife went to examine her, it burned her hand because Mary was so holy and she determined that, no, her virginal integrity still remains. And it goes on to teach that she remained that way forever. So in other words, what's my historical argument against the perpetual virginity? We know that the earliest resources were a bunch of weirdo heretics. We know that's where it started. Even if the Orthodox Church inherited it and affirmed it, we know where it started. And it started in a bad place. Nothing from the first century teaches this. And the only thing from the second century is a document you want nothing to do with. Now, this all leads us to the question. So if I think that this is a false belief from historical and biblical grounds, then we have to be humble. We have to ask, okay, do, I have any, do we have any theory as to why something that I think is so obviously not true, how did it become so popular? How did men far smarter than me come to believe it? Well, I think there's a really, really good theory. And it's because of every church in every age has weaknesses, right? The Christian church today has a lot of weaknesses, probably more than any other age of the church. Uh, but in the early church, they had weaknesses, they had blind spots too, and they're usually different. And I think one of the weaknesses of medieval and Nicene Christianity was their affinity, their love for asceticism and monasticism. They had a love for asceticism and monasticism. What are these words? What is asceticism? It's a word I hate. It's hard for me to say. Let me just give you a brief dictionary definition. It defines it as the practice of strict self-denial as a measure of personal and especially spiritual discipline of rigorous abstention from self-indulgence. Ascetic lifestyles are basically lifestyles where you torture your body in the hopes that it will make you more disciplined, more stronger-willed, and more holy. So if you want to think of an ascetic, you think of like a Buddhist monk. Buddhist monks are ascetics. What do they do? They shave their heads because to do your hair is vainglory. Right? You know, they shave their heads. They have one outfit that they wear every day because to have lots of possessions is you're trying to be greedy and materialistic. So they live incredibly poor lives and they, they, they live up in caves and they refuse to get married and they fast from all sorts of foods and they basically just live their entire days in a cave, you know, studying spiritual disciplines. That is an aesthetic. And oftentimes, uh, they will torture themselves when they do something wrong. They'll cut themselves or they'll whip their own backs. They'll do so to make themselves more holy. Asceticism thinks that by denying yourself your bodily desires and pleasures, you become more holy. And so in the ascetic lifestyle, a man living in a cave, eating bugs and reading the Bible is the holiest of holies. The rest of us are just a bunch of weak-willed people who, I gotta have food, I'm sorry, and I gotta get married, I'm sorry, you're weak. If you were strong spiritually, you could deny food, you could deny your wife, and you could live in a cave and memorize the Bible all day long. That's asceticism. Monasticism is essentially the same thing, just with a very purely religious perspective. Anyone can be an ascetic, even an atheist could be an ascetic. But once you incorporate the religious life into it, once you say that this is a mode to honor the triune God, you become a monastic. And throughout these different traditions, they will actually have monasteries, which is just 
a little church where all of these people come to live ascetic lifestyles together. So this is why you have nuns and this is why you have monks in Roman Catholicism. And what do nuns do? They cover their whole body, everything but their face, so that there is just no possible temptation for any kind of lust. And they fast all the time and there's certain foods they will never eat and they never get married and they never have a social life and they just pray and memorize the Bible and that's all they do. And the idea is that this is the higher form of spirituality. Virginity, abstinence from foods, denying yourself, this is the higher form of spirituality. And we know that this ascetic lifestyle was incredibly popular in the very earliest centuries of the church. Let me just give two examples. The first Christian we know of who promoted the virgin, Mary's perpetual virginity was a man named Origen. And Origen had a lot of weird beliefs. Among them is Origen castrated himself. That's what Origen is known for. He castrated himself. Why? Because sexual intimacy is lower spirituality. And so I'm going to make sure I can't ever do it. He thought he was more holy than you by making himself a eunuch. That's the kind of mentality that's promoting the perpetual virginity. In the second century, we have a group of people known as the Desert Fathers. These were people who were converted in Egypt, and they knew the only way for us to be holy is to flee to the desert and to live in the desert. And so these are men, we have a lot of accounts of them. Most of them seem dramatic, (laughs) to say the least. Some of them are probably not true. Some of the miracles they're supposed to have uh, lived. But some of the things we know about the Desert Fathers, for example, is that there's a rumor that termites lived in their teeth because they just had no cleanliness standards because it is vainglory to want to smell good. It's vainglory. It's greedy and selfish and lustful to want to look good. So they were very gross, had no hygiene. They wore one outfit every day. They never did their hair. And all they did was read scripture, memorize scripture and pray. That was their whole life. They would, they would abstain from food for months at a time. We have accounts of them saying that whenever a disciple would walk by a student or by a teacher, There was a mandatory gap of space that they had to keep from each other to avoid idle conversation. We have stories of one of the Desert Fathers going to one of the swamps in southern Egypt and standing for six weeks in the middle of a mosquito-infested swamp for uh, moistening a piece of bread. He thought the bread was too dry and he dipped it in water and ate it and he was condemned to penances to stand in a swamp for six weeks and get bitten by mosquitoes. That's the kind of thing that people looked at and said, man, those guys are holy. Man, those guys are disciplined. Those guys know how to overcome their body. This was asceticism. In my opinion, the opinion of many modern theologians is that asceticism and monasticism crept into the church at a very early age. And so virginity and abstinence from food, these were seen as high, pure forms of spirituality. And because we love Jesus' mother so much and we love the Holy Family so much, how could she have possibly done something so dirty and so impure and gross like touch a man? The idea was that if Mary wasn't a virgin, that her purity was defiled. And so it became very popular for people to believe that Mary was ever virgin. Now you're probably wondering, okay, you've you've explained it, you've proven it, what on earth does this have to do with Christmas? I think it has a lot to do with Christmas. Because believe it or not, one of the things we celebrate with the birth of Christ is that we have been delivered from asceticism. 
Christmas means, Christmas is your permission. You do not have to be an ascetic. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as Christmas bans you from being a ascetic. You are not allowed to be a monastic. You may not be a monk. You may not be a nun. And why do I say that? Because Christ was born in Bethlehem. What's the connection? Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to read a long section, but I hope most of it will be self-explanatory. Look at verses 16 through 23 with me. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up with reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and human teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul tells us two things about monastic, ascetic lifestyles. And how does he define it? Severity to the body. Regulations. Do not eat this. Do not touch this. You're not allowed to do this. If you sin, torture your body. What does it mean for Paul to abstain from bodily pleasures, to abstain from these things God has made? Paul says that's asceticism and you died with Christ. Therefore, you died to asceticism. Paul defines it as the elemental principles of the world. This is human philosophy. This is not Christian theology. Christ was born, so you do not have to be severe to your body. Christ was born, so no one gets to be your judge as food or drink, Old Testament ceremonial law, or New Testament monasticism. No one gets to be your judge. No one gets to question your Christianity because Christ was born and you died to those worldly religions. And you know what I love about Paul? What does Paul say is, other than that Christ has come and fulfilled our need to do these worldly things? What's another reason Paul says you don't need to indulge in these things? The very last verse. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They don't make you more holy. They don't work. You can stand in a mosquito-infested swamp all you want. It won't make you more holy. You can live in a cave with no food and no clothes and nothing but your Bible. It won't make you more holy. It doesn't work. That's what Paul says. That's not my opinion. That's what Paul says. It's of no value. Monasticism doesn't work and Christ has freed you from it. Let's go back to our first text that we first read. Let's close with this text. Back to 1 Timothy 4. You see, we finally made it all the way back. <laughs> 1 Timothy 4, this is another time where Paul addresses this monastic lifestyle. 
1 Timothy 4. Let's read our text together again, beginning in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So let's stop here. So everything that comes next is going to be the teaching of demonic liars. Okay? What is it that demonic liars want to teach you? Verse 3. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Your marriage is good. Your food is good. God gave it to you as a gift. You are not made more holy when you take God's gifts and say, I don't want them. I don't want your food. I don't want your spouse. I don't want your children. I don't want your comfort. I don't want your clothes. I don't want your shelter. I want to live in a swamp and read the Bible. And God says, that's offensive to me. I tried to give you a Christmas present and you spit on it. That's demonic, not Christian. Everything has been made for good. To be received with thanksgiving. You are not more holy by being a monk. You're less holy. You're denying the gifts that God has given to be enjoyed. It's demonic, Paul says. Now, so so here's how this all ties into Christmas. Are you ready? Christmas is your excuse to enjoy Christmas. In other words, what does a holy Christmas look like? Is it okay to go home to a warm fireplace and fill your bellies with delicious ham? Or are you materialistic and greedy? Do you need to go live in a cave? Give everything you own to the poor. Go live in a cave and read your Bible. No. Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. And that has freed us to enjoy the gifts of God. That has freed us to enjoy Christmas. Now, what you might be thinking is that I'm promoting materialism. I'm not promoting materialism. There's a huge difference between 1 Timothy 4 and materialism. Materialism, first and foremost, is when you never have enough. And I'm not saying you can never have enough. I'm not saying you should go home and desire more than you have. But I'm saying whatever God has given to you, I want you to enjoy it. (laughs) Don't despise it. Enjoy it. Don't be greedy for more. But whatever God has given you, enjoy it. That's not materialism. Materialism also puts all of its hope and love in the gift itself. But Paul says what we do as Christians is everything created by God is good and nothing to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Materialism is when your joy ends with the gift. Christianity is when the gift brings you to rejoice in the giver. Being thankful to God for what he has given you and enjoying what he has given you is not materialism. It's Christianity. So, what am I saying? I'm saying because Christ was born in Bethlehem, go home and get in the coziest Christmas pajamas you have. Enjoy sitting by your warm fire. Enjoy the smell of your Christmas tree. Enjoy your presence. Enjoy every last bite of your Christmas dinner. Enjoy your eggnog, your apple cider. Enjoy your wives. Enjoy your husbands. Enjoy your kids. 
Be thankful to God for every last one of your Christmas blessings because that's the life Christ came to give us. And so perhaps the best way to conclude is I want to wish you a certain kind of Christmas. But because Christ took on flesh, I do not wish you an impoverished Christmas. Though he took on flesh, so neither do I wish you a materialistic Christmas. I do not wish you an ascetic Christmas, nor do I wish you a monastic Christmas. Instead, in the name of the incarnate Lord, Christ our Savior, it is my privilege to wish you a merry Christmas.